God himself has given us his words. I was thinking of a counter argument that we could have today in the church where a child might ask, what's the advantage of me going to Sunday school and learning these things? Well, much and in every way. You've been giving the word of God. We're implanting in you the very word of God that can help you through this life. You're looking too far for that need you have inside. You're on a big merry-go-round and it's taking you for a ride. You've got to let go and let go. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. Today we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. The faithfulness of God, three points that I gave us in our message today. Our advantage and profit in verses 1 through 4. Is God unjust? Verses 5 through 8. And there is none righteous, verses 9 through 20. Here in chapter 3, Paul has anticipated arguments that would have come from everything that he has written so far from chapters 1 and 2. So in anticipating those arguments, he presents kind of a point and counterpoint or question and answer. The question coming from the unbelieving Jews and the answer, Paul giving them the word of God as the answer itself. So we're going to see him all the way through verse 9 do question and answer, question and answer, and he'll go through several of them. And then we get into verses 10 through 18. He actually quotes from eight Old Testament passages to approve his answer. And I think this is important because we know here at the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3 that he is talking to his Jewish brethren. And there's nothing better to use than the very word of God to support your position or your belief than using God's word itself. So talking to the Jews, he ultimately then goes to the word of God in verses 10 through 18 using eight, at least eight quotes from the Old Testament. Kind of closing out again, he's not offering the hope of Jesus Christ as of yet. That begins in verses 21 and 22. And so we'll get to that next week. We may even back up to verse 19 next week to conclude these first three chapters. But here we're going to find that argument that Paul anticipates. Well, our first point, our advantage in profit, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it for the context and get us into the teaching of God's word. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly 
because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And Father, we pray that you would be with us. Open your word to us, Lord. Let us hear what the Spirit has said to your church, but also what the Spirit continues to speak to us this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the question, what advantage then has the Jew or what profit is circumcision? I'm Jewish. I've been circumcised. What advantage do I have over the rest of the world? And he's bringing this based off of the end of chapter two. He was talking about a physical circumcision versus the circumcision of the heart. As we learned in chapter two last week, where he was saying, if a physically circumcised Jewish male walked against the word of God, then his circumcision has become uncircumcision. But in contrast to that, if an uncircumcised a Gentile male walks in the ways of God, then his uncircumcision then becomes circumcision. Paul saying it's an inward issue, verse 29 of chapter 2. A Jew is one who is inwardly and circumcision that of the heart and in the spirit. And not of the letter, but of the praise of him, not of men, but of God. And so they're asking them, what's the advantage? And he said, much and in every way chiefly because to them, to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. We know just from being around me long enough and our radio station, we give you a little Logos each and every day. Logos, the word, it's uh, L-O-G-O-S would be the English spelling of that. Well, the oracles of God, it's Logion. It means the utterance of God or that which God has to say that God himself has given us his words. And so chiefly, and we might argue, I, I was thinking of a counter argument that we could have today in the church where a child might ask, what's the advantage of me going to Sunday school and learning these things? Well, much and in every way, you've been giving the word of God. We're implanting in you the very word of God that can help you through this life. The oracles of God, Stephen, when accounting Moses receiving the Ten Commandments there on the holy mountain in Acts 7.38, he said that they received the living oracles, the living oracles. Not only that it's the oracle of God, but it's the living word of God. It reminds us of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews saying that the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That this is God's living word. And the Jewish people had been given the declarations of God. And although they knew the word of God, many of the Jews had neglected to keep the word of God. And here's the thing. We have today college professors who have their doctorates in theology, but they are not believers in Jesus Christ. They know the word of God. We might say from cover to cover, they know it very well but they haven't allowed it to make that heart penetration into their lives. And many of the Jews, 
as they had grown up memorizing God's word. They knew what the word of God had to say, but they were not living out God's word through their lives. Sadly, they lived under the philosophy, as I said last week, of do what I say, but not what I do. And unlike Paul, who had declared to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. We should allow God's word to have such an impact upon our lives that we are displaying it outwardly for others to see and not concerned of what others are seeing. That God's word holds true and we live it out before others. So their second question, verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And the answer, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and may overcome when you are judged. And even though some of the Jews did not believe God's word, to the point that their hearts had been circumcised by its truth, it did not take away from the truth of God's word. Just because we do not believe in the word of God, I'm not saying that about us, but just because someone doesn't believe that the Bible is the word of God, it doesn't take away from the truth that the Bible is the word of God. It's still God's word, whether we agree with it or not. In 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, it tells us, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And this is the point I wanted us to get to, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. No matter how we view God as humans, no matter how we might view God or view his word, God's word remains true. God remains faithful. God is God. And it's not going to change his position just because of the opinions that we may have. Now, we live in a day and age where many of us change our positions because of the opinions of others. And when the opinions of others change, we change to go with the flow. We don't want the conflict that might come against us. We see it happening politically all the time. And we even see it happening within our churches today. But we need to choose upon whether we're going to stand upon the opinions of men or mankind, or we're going to stand upon God's word and the truth of God's word. God's word is true whether we follow it or not. And that's why David was able to say in Psalm 51, against you, only you, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So here this quote in Romans 3, 4, also found in Psalm 51, verse 4. It's speaking about God, who is the one who is justified and God, who is the one who judges truly that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So when we stand before the Lord one day and he opens the books and as a non-believer, he'll present his law and they'll know that they are guilty according to the word of God. Then God is the one who has been justified 
and he has been blameless as he is judged. He is judged according to his word. And while it's true that David had sinned against many people, such as Bathsheba, who he committed adultery with Uriah, ultimately murdering Bathsheba's husband that he might marry her and hide their pregnancy, his family and his nation, I, I found it when I, I thought about David's family, that, and he did sin against his family, but I was thinking he had so many wives and not as many as his son Solomon would have, but it seems to take away the impact just a little bit on family when there was these multitude of wives. It tells us in Deuteronomy to the kings that would come that they were not to multiply wives for themselves. So the multiplications of wives, although it was what the world did back then, the eastern kings did, and they had many wives and concubines. Uh, the Jewish kings were not to do this, although we know that they did. And yet he sinned against his nation as well. But when he confessed his sin, he said it was to God and to God alone. He knew that ultimately all sin is before the Lord. His cry, it reminded me of Joseph when uh, the Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him. Joseph would cry out in Genesis 39, 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph understood that ultimately, if he would to give in to the seductions of Potiphar's wife, that his sin would be against his boss, Potiphar, but ultimately against God. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And though our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, it will hurt ourselves, it'll hurt others. It is to God that we must give an account. And so Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. It reminds us here in these first four verses that merely having the word of God does not make us the people of God. We can have God's word. It's to our advantage here in the United States that we can have the word of God. You don't even need uh, the Bible in book form anymore in the sense of carrying it, although I carry mine and I use it, but you can have your Bible and you can carry it. I read it on here too, and it's convenient. But we have this advantage of the word of God, but just merely having the word of God doesn't make us the people of God. We have to get God's word into our hearts. So their arguments continue. In verses five through eight, I read the context. And we're looking at, is God unjust? But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good might come? as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Have you ever heard or maybe even said these words? That's not fair. That's what the Jews are doing right here. Maybe as parents, I, I can hear those from my children still to this day. 
But these words are often used by someone who's thinking that they're getting treated unjustly or they're getting a bum deal. But usually the words are from the horizontal plane, from person to person that will say it to another. Sometimes they're in the vertical, from human to God perspective. It seems that our life circumstances perhaps have been unjustly allowed by God. A great argument given in that regard and that thought would be Job's friends as they felt that Job had obviously committed some horrific sin against God to have all these calamities come upon himself and his family. And their remedy for that was simply confess your sin to God and God will bless you again. And Job kept telling them, I have nothing to confess to God. And it's an interesting study there in the book of Job because we find that at times, even those who are walking in the right relationship with God, that trials will come upon their lives that cannot be explained. And so their argument, Paul anticipating that his readers here in verse 5, questioning then if God is just, and their question saying, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And Paul's answer is saying, certainly not. For then how could God judge the world? God would be unable to rightly judge the world if he was unjust. He would have nothing to rightly stand his judgments upon. Let's face the facts here. If we attempt to measure ourselves against God, we always come up a loser in the sense of comparing our righteousness to his righteousness. And Paul stresses this in verse 20 of Romans 3, saying, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So when God judges, he's going to judge according to his law, the living oracles that he has already given us. He will judge according to truth. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He is our rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And if God inflicts wrath, he does so because he is just, he is right, and he is true. But here is the nature of God and the men of faith of the Old Testament. They understood the nature of God, that God is just. Abraham in Genesis 18:25, when the angel of the Lord revealed to Abraham the destruction or coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham said to God, Genesis 18:25, far be it from you to do such a thing as this to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham knew the nature of God, that God does what is right. And so we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that ultimately Abraham would barter with God to spare the city, and got him to say initially that he would spare the city if there was at least 50 righteous people in the city. And then Abraham boldly asked to reduce the number to 40, 30, 20, ultimately to 10. And Abraham was satisfied with 10. 
he was thinking that at least it has to be 10 righteous people in the city. But there was not. And the city was destroyed. But God brought out Lot and his two girls, brought out his wife as well. But that didn't work out so well for her. But Job's friends, as I said earlier, they were arguing with him that he had committed some sin if he had simply confessed to God that God would forgive him and reverse all these calamities that had come upon him. So Bildad said to Job in Job 8.3, Does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? They knew the nature of God. They didn't understand what God was doing in this particular case in the life of Job, but they knew the nature of God. Elihu, another one of Job's friends in Job 34, 19 said, Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the works of his hands. God judges equally, and it doesn't matter the position or the amount of wealth or lack of wealth that we might have in this world. We're all the work of God's hands. And the psalmist declared in Psalm 96, 13, For he is coming, he is coming to judge the earth, and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with truth. God is the only one who can judge in righteousness and truth. And so the truth of God. Questions continue. Verse 7 and 8, two questions in Paul's answer. If the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Paul tags on here that what people were saying about his teaching and the men and women who ministered with them, that they were actually going about saying, let's do evil that good may come. And we do understand that the greater the sinner the greater God's sinlessness is displayed before us. The darker the night, the brighter the light. That's just a given. We understand these things. But having established man's sinful condition versus God's sinlessness, Paul here supposes that his objectors then would naturally argue, let's go ahead and sin, that good may come. The more we sin, the brighter God's glory. I fear that in our churches today, we have this mindset that we shouldn't be so much concerned about living sinlessly before God, that God forgives our sin. We know that we are not sinless beings, and we know that God does forgive our sins, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to walk in sinlessness, to do our best to walk in God's truth. And whether truth versus falseness, righteousness versus unrighteousness, good versus evil, when comparing our humanity to God's perfect deity, mankind always comes up wanting. Psalm 62.9 says, Surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. If they were weighed in the scales, they are altogether lighter than a vapor. And moreover, some say that Paul was teaching those who ministered with him, that they were actually teaching that let's do evil, that goodness might shine through. And we know that when man is at his darkest, 
that God is at his brightest, but it was a false accusation, nor should the church teach that today as well. We should strive to live and to set an example. Remember to say like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Father, we pray that uh, you would just continue to use your word to reveal to us the condition of our hearts. Maybe, Lord, we have been trying to justify our position before you by the good works that we have done. And Paul has shown in these first three chapters that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he presents, Lord, now, as we get into next week, picking up in verse 21 of Romans 3, that the remedy of that sin is our Savior, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we know that and that we've come to understand it and that we are not just those who have been circumcised outwardly, perhaps in the idea of church through coming to church and reading your word, but Lord, circumcised inwardly by coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ and by keeping your word and letting it shine through our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into his image by the power of his Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship him today.